continuing in the thought of the sovereign power of God the Son in his incarnation all the way through his death, burial, resurrection, ascension. We continue then in John chapter 19 and we've come to verse 31. Death is on our minds and hearts, especially today, having lost brother Ed Yeager this morning. It's appropriate for those of us who are in Christ to constantly be reminded of the one who is our creator and our redeemer. He is the author and completer, finisher, perfecter of our faith, we're taught. Hebrews chapter 2, we're taught that mankind lives, is enslaved to the fear of death, generally speaking. Hebrews chapter 9 teaches us that it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. Death is an inescapable thing, except for that remnant at the end of the age who are raptured into the presence of Christ. The great majority of us, however, will die physical death. We have no control over that day. Ecclesiastes 2 says that man does not have authority over the day of his death. It is because Christ is the absolute divine and sovereign power over death, just as he is over life. Every day in my prayer time, I express my gratitude to Almighty God that he has granted me faith and that he has placed me in Christ from before the foundation of the world. And I, I grow in that grace every day. I constantly remind myself of the glory of being in Christ by the grace of God in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. I do not know how I will die or even if I will die. I cannot tell you when that appointed time comes what will be the state of my body or my mind 
what will be the state of the world. But I do know that forever, the state of my spirit is fixed in Christ. Therefore, Christ demonstrates here, and it is the purpose of John, because he started us out before time, really, in John 1, and took the Christ of God who belongs to a realm that we cannot understand that is before time, and then shows us how he comes into time, demonstrates divine and sovereign power all the way through the rest of his life, death, burial, resurrection. And then we're going to see on down here in chapter, not today, but in chapter 20, John writes, I've told you these things that you may believe on his name, that you may understand the awesome power, the divine and sovereign power of Christ. To be in Christ. Life is a very powerful thing. Just human life. The life of a man. He can write instructions on how to do things. He can leave a history to remind us of where we've come from. A man can show us how to split the atom. How to fly in a machine. How to build a machine. How to make a computer that can outthink us and do our thinking for us. The power of life is really something. And what it takes to make life, to make someone live, what power. And yet because of sin, there is another power that negates that power in a sense, and that is, of course, the power of death. But we are taught in the Bible, in the New Testament, that if we are in Christ, death has no power over us because of what we'll see here. Because Christ is always divinely and absolutely sovereignly in control of all of life, demonstrated by himself, by, by what he, who he is, and what he does. Divine sovereign power then in the continuing saga gospel of Christ as we pick back up in John today is interrupted even by death and burial. Life is a powerful thing. Life will come to an end, life as we understand it, as we know physical life, comes to an end. Some of us will live longer than others. No life is ever wasted. Every life is completed because God has written a book about the life of every person. Psalm 139. 
I don't know how many chapters there are in my book. And you don't know how many in your book. It may seem that some books that are written about the lives of people are shorter than others or others longer than others. But not really. The book is finished. When it's completed with regard to earthly life, that's it. Because Christ is divinely and absolutely sovereign over life, death and burial, and resurrection. Revelation chapter 1. John is the last living apostle. All the other ones are dead. According to traditional history, they died for the most part cruel deaths. An old man, John, apparently in his 90s. In the spirit on the Lord's day. Receives his heavenly instruction. And he is granted something. That no other seer, no other apostle was granted. And that is the consummation of the age. Paul saw glimpses of it in his life. Peter received instruction about it regarding this thing and that thing, but not all of it. John, however, stands in the presence of it, in the middle of it, in the spirit on the Lord's day. But the first thing he identifies is the awesome, majestic Christ of God. He didn't look like this when John walked with him in those three years of the ministry, earthly ministry of Jesus. Now, he has hair like wool and eyes like fire and feet like burnished bronze that shine brightly and stomp and trample on sin. And he has a girdle about his waist. He has a belt about his waist that is pure gold and the presence of it shines brighter than the sun itself in the sky. What a sight. And in that Revelation chapter 1, this Son of God says, I lived and I died and I live forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades, the netherworld of the dead. Christ controls it. Keys open doors and they close doors. Christ is the power and authority of life and death and burial and resurrection to glory. This power is no more greatly demonstrated than even here. The last time we were in John, we closed up in verse 30. And in verse 30, 
Christ said to Telestate, Christ said, it has now been completed or it is now accomplished. When Christ accomplished what he set out to accomplish in his death on the cross, Christ knew that it had been done and completed. And with the completion of it, showing his divine and absolute sovereign power, he dismissed his spirit, the life force, from his flesh. He was in control of it. Christ had said earlier in John, no man can take my life, but I'll give it. At 9 a.m., Christ was crucified. Six hours later, he would be dead. From noon until three, the sky darkened. It was like nighttime as Christ hung on the cross. Christ's death did not come as judgment for his sin, for he had no sin. But all of those of us who are in Christ, from the first of us to the last of us, had our sins laid on God the Son. And it wasn't the judgment of his sin, but it was the wrath of God for our sin that came down upon his only begotten son. Wrath. It was this wrath for my sin that came down upon God the Son. For that to happen, the Father had to withdraw himself. Thus the Son would cry, Why, my God, have you forsaken me? It would seem then to me That from the time the darkness descended at noon until it was lifted at three when Christ died, that for those three hours, the wrath of God upon the sins of his own were laid upon God the Son. How long does it take the mighty God-man, Jesus, To finally pay for my sins and for yours, for those of us who are in Christ. How long does it take? Apparently three hours. Darkness and then wrath. Isaiah 53 said that he cried that he was a reproach. A reproach. A reproach, and I looked at it, both, both texts, both, he, both Old and New Testaments, the word pretty much means the same. It is a description of a person who is totally, totally useless and to be rejected and vile. 
who has, who has no attraction about himself at all. It's an appropriate description. It comes from Isaiah 53. Because this bloody mangled form of flesh that hung on the cross surely was crying in agony. That which began with sweating blood the night before continues with the thrashing of his flesh and finally the nailing on the cross. The agony. Oh, not the physical agony. But the horrible agony of the sense of guilt, of sin. I've been a rascal so many times in my life. It seems like the older you get, the more you think of things that you're so ashamed of. You think, how could I have done that stupid stuff? So crazy, so sinful. And I know how bad I feel when I just think of one of those things. But all of mine, and if you're in Christ, all of yours, and all of those who are in Christ from the beginning to the end of us, laid upon him and the wrath of God would crush it. This is my wrath on your nasty sin. And Christ took it upon himself. So did all of the wrath that God would ever have for me because of my sins were spent, was spent on Christ. I'm not under wrath, thank God. It makes me want to fall on my face and not say another word. I have peace, I've been delivered my guilt has been removed. My penalty has been paid. Those hours of darkness, somewhere along the way, included in the reproach and the justification being performed were all of the horrors and ugliness of my sins. Expunged, cleansed. My sins were as scarlet, and I've been made as white as snow. And I don't know how I'm going to die. I don't know. I don't know what will be the state of my mind or my body, or the state of the world, or the state of the church, or anything, but I know this I am forever in Christ. And he won't have to come again to die for my sins. He already did it. It's already settled. It's done for. And Christ knew this. That's why he cried in yielding up the spirit in verse 30. It has been completed. I can have some crazy thoughts. I often think, Whose were the last sins <laughs> that came under the wrath of God? I don't know if it works that way or not. 
But somehow, the divine Son of God knew it had been accomplished. Redemption was complete. Salvation is whole, complete, and forever. Because Christ was not killed by this world, Christ went and gave his life of himself for me. This, I've said from the first of this, this is all very personal to me. To know that Christ is there for me. I can't speak of who else would be there. I don't know. I haven't read the book of life. But I know that I'm there. And I can speak to this truth. That he went there for me. Divine sovereign power uninterrupted by death and burial. First of all, uninterrupted by death. Beginning in verse 31. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation at this time of the Sabbath, uh, of the Sabbath, the Passover, the Sabbath of the Passover, high day, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Now, I could have, I'll, I'll okay, commercial break. The Legacy Standard Bible came out last year. Well, officially, it was, it was in the hands of scholars and a whole lot of people a little while before that. And ever since it came out, as you know, I usually do my own translation here. And I did a lot of research. The Legacy Standard Bible is the latest version of the NASB. You understand? The New American Standard Bible. You understand that? Across the board, scholars will tell you until the Legacy Bible, the closest thing to the original was the NASB because they go for literal. They don't go, they don't go for uh, general interpretation. They go for literal word-for-word interpretation. But do you know the English language has changed the last NASB came out in 95, but the English language has changed and the legacy now has come out. And so for those of you who are interested, you have to order it online. They're kind of hard to get right now. The Legacy Standard Bible. Say again? They have an app. Okay, Legacy has an app. Beginning here this year, because I, I have no problem, I have diligently compared and reviewed the translations, and I'm going to use legacy. So you won't have to ask me, you know, and have a question mark on your face when I say I don't have a, this is the version I'm going to use. Now, from time to time, I may tweak a word here and there, but I don't know. I've read it so much and compared it so much. So anyway, this is the legacy Bible, and I intend to use it for my version of translation. Okay, now. 
Where was I? That the legs might be broken. Now up here, uh, that's an interesting word. Tixon. Uh, it's a Greek word that means shattered to pieces. You can read this in the history books, what the Roman soldiers would do when they got tired of this guy dying. The way to speed up his death and to bring it back, to bring it about in a, an hour or two, would be to take heavy wooden mallets and swing them like a baseball bat against his knees and his lower legs. Shatter his leg bones to pieces. And of course, internal bleeding and other things. Wouldn't be much longer, he'd be dead. All right, so with that in mind, the Jewish leaders, because they were so good, didn't want dead bodies hanging around on the high Sabbath, the high day. So they asked Pilate that the le- their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other man who was crucified with him. But they came to Jesus and they saw he was already dead. They did not break his legs. Remember verse 30 said he yielded up the spirit. They smashed away at those other two guys' legs. Not long after that, those guys were dead. Christ, however, was already dead. So they didn't break his legs. Let's take this a little further. We're talking about the divine, absolute, sovereign power of Christ, even in his death and burial. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. Blood and water came out immediately. That is seen in uh, Psalm 22. And he who has seen has borne witness and his witness is true and he knows that he's telling the truth so that you may also believe. Here's, that's John. John's talking about himself. Who is the only disciple who was a, an eyewitness to the crucifixion? John. Everybody else ran, ran away, right? John is there at the foot of the cross. So he's talking about himself and he said, I'm telling you, This is true. He was already dead. They did not smash his legs. They did not break a bone on his body. However, they did pierce him with a spear. Blood and water came out. Now look at this. For those things came to pass in order that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not a bone of him shall be broken. That's Psalm 34. And again, another scripture that says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. That's Zechariah 12. Christ, the prophecy of what Christ said is in Psalm 22. When when the, the, the pitiful one hanging up cries out, they have pierced my hands and my feet. But then when you compare with Isaiah, you can also see how it would include the piercing of the spear in that the water and the blood came out. And from what I hear, and I'm going to go back to the word reproach. 
If Christ died so quickly, according to the observers, it usually it takes longer than that for a crucified person to die. What killed him? You have to dig into that word reproach and chase that thing through its original language in both Testaments. Reproach means that Jesus was so mistreated, hated, scoffed at, laughed at, humiliated. And there he was dying for his own, accomplishing the will of his father. And all of these others are together in the humiliating of Jesus. He died of reproach, which means he died of a broken heart. The heaviness of sin, the guilt to absorb it and to put it away in himself. To see and consider the horrors of the guilt of sin. He who knew no sin, Paul writes to the Corinthians, was made to be sin. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. He took it and he took it and he took it until he knew he had completely paid the price because his heart had burst open with reproach and he cried, it has been accomplished. Water and blood. that the scriptures would be fulfilled. He was a reproach. They couldn't break his bones. Jesus, his body was dead on the cross, but they had no control over whether or not they would break his bone. Jesus had, had that control. That he would die at his appointed time in the hand of Jesus, God, the Son, that they would pierce him was beyond their control because the scriptures must be fulfilled. The divine sovereign power of Christ uninterrupted even in his death. And the divine sovereign power of Christ was uninterrupted by his burial. Now after these things, Joseph of Arimathea. Pay close attention to these words. Being a disciple of Christ, but secretly. Because of his fear of the Jews. Asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission, so he came and took away his body. And Nicodemus, another secret disciple, who had first come to him by night. Remember that back in John 3, was it? Also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, weighing about 100 litres. That is the weight of the spices required to anoint the burial of a king. 
Now, where did these guys come from? <laughs> I'll tell you. They came from the divine sovereign power of the Christ of God who was, whose body was dead and about to be buried because the scripture says in Isaiah 53, his grave would be among the rich. Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. He had a tomb, fresh, clean, unused tomb. Now I know that sounds crazy. You can't go out here to the graveyard and say, don't you have one that's used? I can buy a little No. It don't work that way. But it did back then. Here's what they did back then. Ostrary, is that what they Ostrary? Uh, something like that. Somebody would die. They'd put him away, cover it up, dig a hole in the side of a hill, cover it up, sepulcher. A long time would come by. They would give him time to dry out real good. So other people of the family begin to die. Well, they chip that sepulcher open, drag out those bones, disjoint all of the bones, and put them in a little box. Instead of a big coffin, just put them in a little box. So now you got a lot more room. You get more people in there, right? So there'd be a used tomb. <laughs> the next guy, uh, you know, it's okay. Uh, however you want to do mine, I, I, I won't object. <laughs> I guarantee you, I will offer no objection. That's how they did it then. Some years back, they thought they may have discovered the burial ostuary of James, the half-brother of Christ. And he was in one of those little boxes with other members of what appeared to be of the same family. So that's what they would do. Well, this was a freshly carved out tomb because this guy was rich. And the rich guy would say, I don't want no company. When you put, I don't know how he'd keep it from happening. But I'd just soon be in there by myself. So nobody else was in there and they laid Christ in that tomb. Why? Well, Christ was just borrowing it. He wasn't going to need it very long. But primarily and because the scriptures said he would die with the wicked and be buried, his grave would be with the rich man. So he died with criminals and was buried with rich people. And suddenly, here's this guy shows up, right? And Nicodemus, in a way, does as well. All the things that happened all the way through John, from, well, from John 3, when we first met Nicodemus. But all those things, you don't see these guys hanging around. You don't see them anywhere. And all of a sudden, they show, why? I'll tell you why. Because God the Son was in charge, even of his burial. He would be buried among the rich. He would die with the criminals and be buried among the rich. Isaiah 53. But a neat little side note. No king could be anointed 
any better than Christ was anointed with spices. A hundred litras. I don't know. I could look it up. I probably have known in the past. But my understanding is it's pretty heavy, pretty heavy weight. A lot of stuff with which to anoint his body. Buried in a sense like a king, right? Buried among rich people. Just like the scripture says. Here's why. Jesus is always in control. What's happening in life right now? Your life. My life. Just go somewhere and say, Jesus, this kind of hurts and I know there's a good reason for it. This is your problem, not mine. Because you are in control. I know it means good for me, and somehow it's going to be better than it is now because you are in control. The body of Christ must have been a mess to clean up, to hold together in the wrappings, then to be anointed gloriously and carefully placed in the tomb of a rich man among rich people, in a tomb that had never been used, a high special honor and place because he's in control even of his burial. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. In the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. They weren't in control of that. Jesus was, because that's what the prophet said would happen. Moving on into chapter 20. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark. Saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter, to the other disciple, whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb, and two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first, stooping down, looking in. He saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Simon also came, following him, entered the tomb, went in, saw the linen wrappings lying there, the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but folded up in a place by itself, so the other disciple who had come first to the tomb then also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to where they were staying. Going to stop it there. To be continued, it'll be a lot of fun when we see it. But for now, we're 
going to bow our heads and close our eyes, okay? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he came into this world to save sinners. God's plan for us, from our perspective, is this. It's ABC. Admit that you're a sinner. Believe in Jesus Christ. Call on him to save you. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The call of God. Perhaps God calls you to his salvation today. Or maybe you're already saved and God is calling you into the fellowship of this church. We have deacons and their wives ready to pray with you and to talk to you about that. As you exit, you'll see them in the doors just across the hall. And they will take care of all the details of whatever might be on your heart regarding God's call for your salvation or your coming into the membership of this church. But for now, let's prayerfully stand and we're going to be dismissed in a word of prayer.